The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Maria Gloria Dominguez Bayo. She is the Henry Rutgers Professor of Microbiome and Health in the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology and of Anthropology at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Dr. Dominguez Bayo holds degrees in biology, animal nutrition, and a PhD in microbiology. Her research interests focus on the microbiome development from birth, functions for the host, impact by practices that reduce microbial transmission or disrupt the microbiota, and strategies for restoration. She also studies how westernization changes environmental microbes and human exposures, integrating the fields of anthropology and architecture and urban studies into microbial ecology. Her current projects include studying the effects of C-section on development, the effect of the lack of direct breastfeeding on the infant microbiome development, and the microbiome of isolated peoples. I first learned of Dr. Dominguez Bayo's work in the documentary film, The Invisible Extinction, which spotlights hers and her husband's work as they endeavor to save the vanishing microbes that are essential for our survival. Dr. Dominguez Bayo has also spearheaded the creation of an international micro vault, much like the seed vault, to safeguard precious microbes that may help cure chronic illnesses one day. Welcome, Dr. Dominguez Bayo. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am curious to know what was it that first sparked your interest in microbiology? Well, I did biology originally, and then I did ecology, and I was fascinated by microbes that colonize organs in animals to do digestion, like cows do, like some big whales, uh, that's called foregut fermentation. So they don't digest the food, but microbes digest for them. And that was the beginning. I got fascinated for these ecosystems where microbes were providing a host that they colonized with already digested foods while the host provided a home for these microbes. And I studied birds and comparative, and then I jumped to the human stomach and I studied human stomachs that were populated with Helicobacter pylori. And then I jumped to the microbiome and more complex community approaches to microbial ecosystems in humans. Well, I have to say that in my 40-year career as a dietitian, the role of the microbiome and specifically the organisms that live in the gut or the microbiota that live in the human gut has probably been truly revolutionary in how we eat and the importance of our diet and our overall health. And I I believe it's the future of medicine. But I want to know specifically about your research. And let's start with the effect of C-section 
versus vaginal birth on the health of the infant microbiota? Okay, so the first thing is, you know, babies are formed in utero under sterile conditions. There are no live microbes there. The mother has a microbiome in all her epithelia, so the gut is the biggest, but the skin is covered with microbes and her vagina is covered with microbes and the ears and the eyes and the nose, all the epithelia that covers our body and the gut are covered with microbes. Fetuses are receiving signals, chemical signals of products produced by these microbes, but the fetuses are sterile and they come in contact for the very first time with microbes when mom breaks waters. So the bag is broken and now the baby starts descending through a birth canal that is loaded with good microbes. We know them all because they are very relevant to milk, lactobacillus, bifidobacterium. Everybody knows them because of the yogurts and probiotics. So by the time there are several hours that mothers need to deliver the baby, by that time when the baby is completely out, that baby has been already for hours exposed to these bacteria, swallowing the bacteria, rubbing their skin, So those babies are already heavily colonized when they are born because they got the microbes during birth. When a baby is born by C-section, the doctor is opening surgically and getting the sterile baby into the air of the operating room. And those babies are first colonized instead of vaginal microbes. They are colonized by skin microbes, microscopic skin flakes in the air of the operating room. The source of these microbes may be the cleaning team of the operating room, other nurses or doctors. Probably the least source is the mother. Of course, we are now doing skin to skin more and more in which the mother will also expose the baby to skin bacteria. But in vaginal birth, it's a secondary exposure in C-section would be a primary exposure. We know that these C-section born babies assemble their microbiota in a different way and following different trajectories. And they catch up eventually after one year, but during the most important developmental window, when the babies are developing their brain and their immune system, those microbes were abnormal. On the other hand, we know that C-section-born babies or babies that have had antibiotics or babies that were not breastfed but had formula, all these babies show similar alterations in their microbiome. And all these babies have higher risk of later showing diseases that have to do with ill education of the immune system. And these are what we call the modern plagues asthma, allergies, gluten allergies, obesity, which is far more complicated than simply eating too many calories, right? That's right. These diseases are what we call the modern plagues because as societies modernize and get more technological and adopt Western medicine, we are changing infectious diseases for chronic diseases. So we are replacing trading infectious diseases that now we control because we have antibiotics and 
we have medicine, the consequences of this uh, application of these antibiotics or C-sections or medicine or formula seem to be increasing the risk of that baby for these diseases that have later onset. So the mothers don't realize it immediately. The mothers don't look at the microbiome, neither do the doctor. But if we look at the microbiome, we can tell the two groups of babies apart. Those that are following an abnormal trajectory, they were born by C-section, and those that are born vaginally and have the normal trajectory. They catch up, but we think that that abnormal situation during a crucial time of developing the immune system may be the underlying the later higher risk of diseases. And what is that critical time period? Is it the first week of a baby's life, the first several months? When do we have an opportunity to restore that gut microbiome? So we think the earlier, the more crucial. So there is a there, there was an experiment done by farmers during 70 years. They were given antibiotics from birth to animals because animals grow bigger. So mm-hmm. the biology of those animals is changing. The antibiotics is changing that. What they didn't know is that they didn't need to give low-dose antibiotics for life as they were doing. They only needed to do it during lactation period. They didn't know that, so they were using antibiotics for life. We know in mice that, and these are experiments that were first Marty Blazer, who you interviewed recently, showed, you only need to give the antibiotics for the first four weeks When you win the mice, if you stop the antibiotics, you get the same phenotype of disease than if you continue the antibiotics for life. So the lactation period is crucial. Now, we don't know exactly, is it the lactation period, which in humans is five and a half to six months, the strict lactation, or is it the three first months? We don't know. When we have tried restoration, we have done it the closest possible to nature, and that is at birth. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about vaginal seeding, but before I get there, I want to talk about the babies that have been born via C-section, as well as those babies who are sent to the NICU or the neonatal intensive care unit, where they may receive antibiotics there, they're separated from even their mother's skin. Can those babies then either receive probiotics or can they be receiving breast milk during that time of separation? And does the administration of either probiotics and or breast milk help restore a healthy infant gut? So C-section babies are not as perturbed as babies that have to go to the NICU and have to be given antibiotics. I mean, there is a whole gradient from very relatively low perturbation, and then very highly perturbed. So and these are perturbation in terms of whatever is impairing transmission of microbes from mothers to babies. So one thing we know is that breast milk is highly restorative. We don't know the mechanisms, but if a baby has antibiotics or is born by C-section, and the baby is breastfed, that baby 
restores faster than babies that are not breastfed. I know there is enough evidence now that it's much better to give human breast milk to babies in the NICU than anything else. So now mothers are pumping to feed the babies in the NICU. In some NICUs, the mothers even have contact, physical contact with the baby. Right. So I think we are moving there. Those babies don't need to be sterile if they have milk microbes and good microbes that are natural to be acquiring at the beginning of life. Again, we need more studies to understand how wide is the window for restoration. Mm-hmm. As for probiotics, I'm not sure because, again, probiotics is a field that is too commercialized. And a lot of probiotics, I haven't seen papers you know, where they are tested. It's not transparent. And I think academia, independent researchers, not the companies, but independent researchers, need to do those trials to really lack the conflict of interest that a company may have. There are some studies that seem convincing, but then what is the strain? Because some strains work and some strains don't work. So it's a very fussy universe, that of probiotics. Mm. I agree. All right. We are halfway through. So let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Dr. Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bayo, and she is the Henry Rutgers Professor of Microbiome and Health in the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Let's jump into a field of study that you've been involved with, and that has to do with the potential to reseed an infant's gut after the mother has the C-section by using vaginal fluids to help get that baby's gut back to a more normal state. Right. So what we do is expose the sterile baby as soon as we can in the operating room with a gauze that was incubated in mom's birth canal. And we pass the gauze, we clean the baby, we swab the baby with the gauze, starting in the mouth, followed wind by the face, and then the rest of the body. So we also are seeding the skin. Actually, the skin of all the sites, even after one year, you can see how well the skin is restored. You can still tell apart babies that are born by C-section are not seeded after one year. But if they are seated, the skin restores beautifully. The mouth restores beautifully. The gut restores partially. Those babies are closer to vaginally born microbiota, but not fully restored. You can still distinguish them, but they are significantly closer. And then if those C-section babies are then further breastfed, I'm assuming that that further enhances the health of their gut microbiome. Right. We didn't have the power to separate and analyze the effect of breastfeeding, but there are plenty of studies that show that breastfed babies from that first vaginal inoculum, the milk boosts good microbes, Mm -hmm. uh, bifidobacteria, because the milk has a special fiber, milk fiber, which are very short chains of carbohydrates that nobody can digest except the bacteria that the baby received from the vagina of the mother. I have to say from the vagina and the feces, 
because the birth canal is always in all animals, in all vertebrates, the birth canal is next to the defecation orifice. And this is true from fish to mammals to every vertebrate. So we know in humans, when we do a vaginal swab perinatally, we can find fecal bacteria there too. So the baby's exposed to the perineal area that has also fecal bacteria. And that is not a random design. You know, nature designed us to have the babies through the umbilicus, for example, which would be kind of the normal expected place where is the baby's connected to the mother. Why don't we have babies through the umbilicus? We don't. We have babies next to the anus, next to the rectum. And that design is so conserved among animals that it has to be meaningful. It has to be adaptive. It has to be good. And our interpretation, our microbiologist view of that is that it's perfect to see the baby with gut bacteria that are important for the gut of the baby. But we also find in the vaginal canal of mothers giving birth at the time of birth giving oral bacteria, and we find skin bacteria. So the vagina seems to have microbes that are going to be the pioneer microbes that colonize every site that the baby has, which is beautiful. It is. Now this bifidobacteria, if the baby does not come through the birth canal, through the vagina, is bifidobacteria also in breast milk? So breast milk, there are bacteria that grow outside in the areola and in the external part of the duct, not in the mammary gland because the immune system is there to keep those guys, friendly guys, in the allowed territories, not in the forbidden. So if, if we get bacteria in the mammary gland, we get mastitis. So there is normal colonization. And as, as you get into the canal in the breast, you get sterile. The same is true or nearly sterile. The same is true for the urethra, for example. For the vagina, the uterus is connected to the vagina, and, and yet the immune system does a great job sterilizing. So bacteria that feed on milk also grow in the outer side of the duct and also in the skin where there is milk. There are residues there, and the babies are also swallowing those bacteria when they breastfeed breast milk. So they can get the protective bifidobacteria from around the areola if they're not exposed to the vagina or if they had received antibiotics. The thing is, with milk, bifido boosts. All they need is to get one live cell of bifido, and then that population will be selected by the milk. So even if they get it by contamination of the mother's hands with vaginal, we observe even mothers that take a shower, we can find vaginal bacteria in their arms, for example. You don't get sterile by taking a shower. Wow. We can tell in the skin of the mothers that gave birth vaginally, we can tell there are vaginal bacteria that are after breaking waters and going to the shower. So those bacteria stay in the very arms that are going to hold that baby. And I think there must be also transfer with via the hands, for example, of the mother, or via the skin of different sites, because the mother may be getting vaginal bacteria, you know, in her hands. We haven't tested all these hypotheses, but what we know is that 
babies that are breastfed are getting more and boosted more of the good bacteria like bifido. Bacteroides is another group that can be restored. Mm-hmm. We should talk about the difference between direct breastfeeding and breast milk that comes through a bottle, especially in westernized cultures where moms have to go back to work. It's more convenient, quote unquote, to put that breast milk perhaps in a bottle. But there are effects, aren't there, on that infant microbiome? Tell us what they are. So the main effect, I think, is the timing. When you breastfeed in the morning, the milk that you expressed last night, and you breastfeed at night, the milk you expressed during the day, that's hugely different milks. When the night comes, we are starting to raise the hormone that will make us sleepy in our blood. Everybody raise melatonin at night. Well, if you are a lactating mom, you will express that in your milk and the baby will drink that information. In the morning, when you wake up and you are rested and you're ready for the day activities, you have high cortisol, which is the hormone of stress. The baby will drink that in the morning. So the baby is drinking circadian information. If you respect the time of milk production and milk consumption by the baby. So if you cannot breastfeed, one trick would be to label the milk in a.m., noon, p.m., and night. That would help because at least the baby's drinking the right hormones, the natural hormones of the day. Babies don't have circadian rhythms. They don't have a natural cycle of sleep and wake up. They don't know what day and night is. So they drink it in the milk of the mother. So we we want to do the study. We are trying to get funding for that, where we have working moms that have their babies nearby in baby-friendly lactation spaces versus the mothers that drop the babies in the morning with the bottles in uh, traditional daycare places, which is the gold standard, right, in our society. We want to study, are they babies different in behavior and the mothers and the family? So we want to assess well-being of mom and baby. Our hypothesis is that if you go back to work and you can breastfeed directly your baby, you will have the happiest, you will be the happiest being on earth. You will work much better. You will be able to concentrate because basically if you can walk to your baby every time you stop to go to the bathroom, you can kiss your baby. Both mothers will be much happier than mothers that have the separation anxiety. Separation anxiety is very painful. And if you're a mom, I'm sure you know. Absolutely. I couldn't go through it. And I took my daughter to my office. I couldn't separate from her. And babies also may feel separation anxiety. They are being bottle fed by probably different persons. There is no bonding. So the other hormone that is very important is the love hormone. When you feel love for your baby, oxytocin peaks. And oxytocin is peaking also in the baby. And I'm not sure it's because the baby is drinking the milk high in oxytocin or because the baby is so happy to bond with the mother. There are not many studies on this. So we want to study 
well-being of the baby and mom, but also are the babies that are directly breastfeeding sleeping better, crying less, are less they moody, what's the temperament, etc., and their microbiome. Because in a way, we know that baby's microbiome is like a very sensitive thermometer that is telling us about stressors and perturbations. Mm. We just have a few minutes left, and I must talk to you about the Microbiota Vault Project, a vault for humanity. What do we need to know about it? So when we started to realize that we are losing diversity of human microbes, and we have seen that, and many people have seen that there is loss of diversity as societies urbanize. And we know that from now on, according to the UN, the growth of human populations will only be urban, not rural anymore. Everybody's urbanizing. We are converging into this uh, lifestyle of high-tech, industrialized societies. And we realize if we are losing diversity and we still don't know what functions are associated with that diversity, we may need them to restore But we can't wait until the studies are done because the world is urbanizing and it's losing diversity. And this expands beyond humans. We are losing diversity in the soils. We are using microbial diversity in rivers and in oceans. We are impacting our bodies and the planet extensively. So we should save microbial specimens that contain the original complex communities by freezing. Microbes can be frozen and they survive. So inspired in the example of the seed vault where they froze, because agriculture is is doing the same to the plants that nature evolved, then medicine and modern lifestyle is doing to microbes everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we decided to create a microbiota vault. And the basic idea is to help create local collections in everywhere in the world, collections of human microbes, but also of environmental microbes, and then offer these collections a free backup of their collection in a safe place and offer them free metagenomics, free sequencing to publish the gene content for free. And the world can do research on that. The biological material is exclusive property of the depositor, so nobody can touch that. But the data that describes those communities should be public to the world, including for the developing countries to be able to do research, just having a computer and a trained scientist. Mm. So right now, more and more developing countries that don't have the very expensive high tech to do lab work and sequencing they can benefit of having the sequences published and access for free. Well, I will provide a link to the Microbiota Vault. It's www.microbiotavault.org. This is the Vault for Humanity. It is brilliant. I think it is the future of medicine. And I will also provide a link to the excellent film, www.theinvisibleextinction.com 
We are out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Maria Gloria Dominguez Bayo, Henry Rutgers Professor of the Microbiome and Health in the Department of Biochemistry and Microbiology and Anthropology at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Dr. Dominguez Bayo, thank you for this critically important research that you're doing and for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much to you, Melinda, and your team, and thank you for having me.